be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. The podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today we are looking at the third overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 2, often known, depending where you look, as Season 1, Episode 3, Episode 3, or what the German regionalization team named Zen or the Skill to Catch a Killer. I'm your host, John. The only Bureau of Business this time has to do with the Murder at Teal's Pond by Mark Givens and David Bushman. The book is out. The book is good. The book is interesting. And it goes into the case that um, inspired Mark Frost, in part, to create the Laura Palmer side of the mystery uh, when he and David Lynch were looking for a way into this town. It's a good story. So, yeah, give it a try. You can find it uh, pretty much anywhere, but I know that Fayetteville Mafia Press has it too. So, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Scott would probably like you to go that way, and I wouldn't mind it either. As far as episode two goes, Twin Peaks episode two begins with an awkwardly silent dinner scene with the horns, which gets loud with the arrival of Jerry and his baguettes. Ben depresses Jerry so much with the local news that they need to go to One-Eyed Jack's where Ben coin flips his way into time with the new girl. James and Donna share their feelings after dinner with their parents, while Mike and Bobby talk money and drugs with Leo in the dark. Ed gets grease on Nadine's drape runners, and she bends her exercise equipment. Bobby sees what Leo did to Shelley. Audrey dances at the double R, and Cooper brings everyone outside to throw rocks at bottles. Albert arrives to no one's pleasure except ours and Cooper's. Josie learns the mill has two ledgers. Leland dances with Laura's picture no matter what Sarah has to say. And Cooper has one of the most famous dreams to ever air on television. So that's the same plot we've known since 1990, but does it feel different to you since watching the 2017 iteration of Twin Peaks? What new questions have come to the surface with our new understanding? And there's a lot of it. Makes you think differently about all of it if you watch that show from beginning to end. So the questions that 
I've reframed things with personally is who is on a similar frequency as the Red Room? How does the Bottle Rock Toss scene describe reality in Twin Peaks? What is going on in the Palmer House? How does Cooper's Dream describe reality in Twin Peaks? What kind of presence is Mike slash Philip Gerard? And what kind of presence is Laura Palmer? So before we can really dig into those questions, as usual, we're going to look first, as we always do, into the context of the time at the time when this episode was being made to find out what our foundation is. So episode two was made completely out of order. And most of the, well, the episodes were always written in order, but everybody knew at the beginning of production that David Lynch was going to direct this episode and he was going to have to direct it after he finished up making Wild at Heart. Uh, when it actually came into, um, into the window where Lynch could do it was as episode six was wrapping up the uh, Caleb de Chanel episode. And before Mark Frost really started the season finale, which is episode seven, um, we know that they filmed together or he, that Lynch filmed in between these two because um, the, the, um, outside location that was not filmed within the warehouse of Van Nuys was uh, the the bar area of One-Eyed Jacks. And he uh, and Lynch, Frost, and Deschanel filmed there all at once. All three of their episodes got their One-Eyed Jacks scenes filmed there. As far as this episode goes in particular, um, Dwayne Dunham, he was editing Wild at Heart, he left to film uh, episode one, and then he went through the post-production on episode one to keep Twin Peaks on track. And then he went back to Wild at Heart, which coincided almost exactly with when Lynch filmed, when, <laughs> when Lynch finished filming Wild at Heart. And so he and Dunham basically flip-flopped, except this time um, the, the post-production was being done at the same time. So he and Lynch were actually in the same building while Lynch was doing this. And um, that made Lynch also in the same building while Dunham was filming episode one. It was interesting because Lynch could always be on hand to answer questions, even if he was working on his movie mostly. So even though he was kind of off to the side of everything, he could still field things from the Twin Peaks folks while they did their deal. Now, there was yet another way that things were filmed out of order because the dream sequence that Cooper has at the very last uh, scene of this episode was filmed completely before the pilot was finished. Uh, back in Washington, they filmed most of the... Um, most of the scenes in Washington with um, all the way up through the Bob monologue. And then um, during the pilot's post-production, Lynch came up with the Red Room sequence and like flew in Cheryl Lee and all this other stuff and um, basically filmed all the backwards talking segments um, before the pilot was completed. And then that was added to the end of the pilot um, from the point where Sarah Palmer sees the hand reaching down to grab the necklace. 
That was subbed out for a scene where Laura Palmer's looking into Laura's room, and it's a darker shot, but Bob is actually still there at the base of the bed. It's just not that traditional one that Dunham ended up shooting. Um, so yeah, she sees that. She freaks out. Leland calls Andy and Lucy, and we see uh, we see Andy playing the trumpet badly while Lucy uh, takes the message from from Leland. And then we see um, we see Hawk uh, doing the sketch where they're going over to Sarah's house and like sketching out the uh, the main suspect. So that's how we get the Bob um, the Bob picture within the pilot or within the international pilot ending. Some other plot that we get in the pilot, we get Mike's monologue in the basement. Uh, we get, you know, the um, the voice of God, I cut off the arm, all, all that kind of stuff. And we do get Bob's, um, you know, catch you in my death bag, all that kind of stuff. And um, basically, uh, when he says, and I will kill again, uh, Mike <laughs> bursts in in the hospital basement, says, like hell, and shoots him down. So <laughs> that was the end of Twin Peaks, uh, according to um, what they shot in Washington. Um, the, the epilogue that we get later with the 25 years later and then it's in the red room that was all actually done after the six weeks filming so um the initial intent was it would end right there with um with mike also seemingly dying after killing bob and that was supposed to wrap it all up oh yeah um and uh lynch and frost and everybody in production basically had to say this is absolutely not canonical we are not this is not the actual ending of Twin Peaks. But the, even though it was contractually obligated, even Frost knew that, as he said, it was too cool and weird to lose it. And he felt it would continue. Oh, boy. <laughs> and he felt it would contribute to the mysteries and plot. But its driving of the future plots came later organically. So. Even even we get it straight from Frost that the mythology was not overtly planned out from minute one. And um, I think um, just in general, it probably falls under happy accidents how the mythology of Twin Peaks was installed as we went. And I find it absolutely interesting that this wasn't actually meant to drive anything. It was just there for color almost. So. As far as Lynch as a director, he was he was pretty much the character you would expect him to be. Um, Philip Siegel, who worked in the production, he was basically telling a story in Reflections, an oral history of Twin Peaks by Brad Dukes. Uh, he told Brad that um, Lynch was an hour and a half late because he saw 666 on a license plate, and he drove around until he saw another license plate that would cancel out the bad mojo. So, I mean, he would he would be an hour and a half late to work because of a license plate sometimes. You know, he's he's an interesting dude. And um he really is into numbers, like just in general. Uh Kimmy Robertson within an interview she did with our own Andrew Grievous, uh she even brought up that the town population adds up to a 9, which it means something to Lynch and it means something within 
the show itself. Like, we don't technically know what it means, but we know it's important enough to Lynch that it trickled down to Kimmy. And, uh, yeah, so he's, he's serious about this kind of stuff. Um, and he can't be rushed either. Like you can, you can try to make a regular production schedule and it's a little bit hectic and everybody's trying to get done within the certain time. Um, all the other directors, but when it came to Lynch, like all the, all the people trying to speed along production, like he would not have anything less than his own vision done. You know, it's like he would spend, um, he would spend so much time particularly trying to get one thing that he's looking for. And then, um, you know, then later on he'll do uh, a bunch of scenes together as one shot and he'll basically say, okay, you're going to be over here. You're going to be over here. Um, and then like, he would just do this whole thing in one take and that's how he would decide to catch up. Uh, he made these bubbles where all the cast, all the crew were unified in this one particular creative purpose that he was looking for. And he made everybody feel safe. He made everybody feel part of a team and he made everybody feel like we can do this. Like, I, I don't know if, uh, exactly how his meditation works into this, but his method of how he gets his ideas and how he gets everybody focused on one particular thing. Um, it seems, it seems connected for sure. And it definitely makes his cast and crew absolutely love him. And then there's this other part that, that Lynch has where like he'll, well, famously in the episode 29 season two finale, he like threw out the whole script and, and, uh, redid it all. And, um, he, um, he does it periodically throughout the show too. And in this particular episode, there's an instance where Audrey and Donna were supposed to have their catch up scene. Um, not in the diner, but outside of a church. So, um, I mean, you figure, okay, first of all, you don't want to have to have an outside scene where you have to leave the building and set up a whole new location. I mean, from a practical standpoint, I can see why he would want to stay in. But he also, in this case, brings it into the diner where, you know, you can have a conversation about Dale Cooper likes coffee. And um, you also have a jukebox where uh Cheryl and Fenn can do that dance to um the new song that um Lynch and Battlemente had just finished up and uh yeah so like thematically it's more connected like um the the information is basically the same you know Donna and Audrey are just kind of catching up and trying to connect you know like uh what does Laura know about my father all that um he won't change the information that's presented like even even in the season two finale he didn't really change a lot of the actual information that needed to be conveyed he um he makes these tonal changes where he keeps the central point and the purpose but then he'll present it in a way where the nuance of that information comes out in a different way so it's all there but he he just like focuses it kind of like how he does uh these creative bubbles so anyway after 
after the episode had been wrapped up and it's all together with season two and it's debuting on television, the end result is on April 19th, 1990, it got 19.2 million viewers, which was pretty good. I mean, it was under 20s. It was under the 20s for the first time, but it's still doing respectably well for a show on the third best network up against Cheers and up against this brand new show called Wings that the Cheers people were making. Um, I know when when I was a kid, that's what I ended up watching was Wings because everybody was talking about it. You wanted to figure out what the small town airport show was going to be um, with all the, you know, Cheers being the juggernaut that it was. So um, the fact that uh, Wings debuted with a 27.9 and the Twin Peaks show came up with 19.2. Not, not too bad. I mean, I, I ended up missing the Red Room dream because I followed the hype, but that's okay. Um, yeah, so it's starting to slide a little bit, but it's not doing too bad. We'll see how the public reacted to hearing about the Red Room dream next week and how how maybe lower the ratings actually are okay so now that we've looked at how it was created how it debuted on television it's time to look at lynch's final words on the episode by way of the 1993 log lady introductions that he created in front of the episodes when it was syndicated for bravo network back when twin peaks was dead as a doornail the twin uh the fire walk with me sequels that were kind of in the ether had to be shuttered because fire walk with me tanked and um yeah it's like every every bad feeling lynch could have basically told him that twin peaks was done so these are his final words his final framing of what he wanted you to think about when watching these episodes so margaret says Sometimes ideas, like men, jump up and say hello. They introduce themselves, these ideas, with words. Are they words? These ideas speak so strangely. All that we see in this world is based on someone's ideas. Some ideas are destructive. Some are constructive. Some ideas can arrive in the form of a dream. I can say it again. Some ideas arrive in the form of a dream. So again, we're looking at Lynch's um, connections to TM, uh, you know, Transcendental Meditation, and um, kind of how he, he goes and comes up with these ideas. And he definitely thinks ideas are a, a loaded word. Um, Basically, this this log lady intro is kind of about allowing ideas to percolate and arise from one's unconscious. These ideas speak so strangely. I know it makes L think about the uncanny, like how dreams form truths into strange and mysterious symbols. Um, Twin Peaks codes its clues for both Cooper and the audience and the signifiers, and. Um, as as L would mention, also the um, the Jungian perspective. It 
kind of turns things into archetypes and symbols. And I know if Lynch isn't bringing that, that Mark Frost is for sure, because he's all about Jung. Um, he would have read Man and His Symbols, definitely. And um, when, when this dream was decided to be included as a clue for the audience, like, as, um, as Frost was, was uh, overseeing the writing of the season, he was definitely looking at this dream as something to decode into archetypes and symbols to get to, get to um, future understandings. Margaret says, ideas like men. So there's an equation here, like are Mike and Bob personified ideas? Is like everything from the Lodge kind of a personified idea? Like do, do all of the Lodge spirits have a symbol that they are playing a part of? I, I think up to a point, like maybe that's where they start. And um, maybe that's where they finish too. I'm not exactly sure how to how to put that, but I like that it's here for us to use as as a magnifying lens for things as we go. One thing that I keyed in on here is some ideas are destructive, some constructive. Um, it's definitely in keeping with my take on what the dream is because it's not. The dream isn't a positive or a negative frequency. It's um, it's both of them. Because like you you think about Nadine and in, in high school, you know, it's like it's sort of it's it's a delusion, just like um, some of these things that we'll see that are definitely negative, like where where Bob and uh, the people who can see him are. Like that's a definite negative frequency. But then there's these sort of positive frequencies too, where you're you're like thinking about like how rich we're gonna get, and um, you know, it's like it's it's good for the soul to have a spot where like you can kind of heal yourself and recharge yourself, and dreams are good for that too. And um, like El told me once, uh, we need the positive and negative because they're powering the dream. I thought that was a really nice way to put it, and. Um, yeah, like, I, I think it's absolutely spot on, too. So Margaret also says, some ideas arrive in the form of a dream. And I mean, this is pretty, pretty cut and dry what it means, but it introduces the importance of dreams. Because up to this point, you know, it's like people would mention, like, somebody's, you know, talking about, you know, like Donna last episode, talking about, you know, being in a dream and a nightmare all at once. And um, episode one, or the the pilot has a whole bunch of that too. Um, so I mean, dreams are mentioned in every single episode of Twin Peaks. But um, as far as Cooper's investigation, this is like this is telling us how to watch the show in a lot of ways, and um, it also leads into the whole meta suggestion of strangeness being a part of the experience of watching TV. Of <laughs> of watching Twin Peaks, um, you know, allow the strangeness, like we allow the dreams to present ideas in a strange and unsettling form, but it will still uncover truths in us. You know, whether it's from a young perspective or just how you can um, 
you know, look for the big fish when you're meditating. It's all in there. Okay, so now we've gone through the Log Lady intro with Lynch's final words, quote unquote. And now we're going to consider Lynch's next set of final words, which was the 2017 variety of Twin Peaks. Now that we've seen all of that, how are we going to apply what we've now known to what we used to know with episode two? And um, I'm going to try to do my best to find the commonalities between what we have seen in original Twin Peaks and what we will see in the season three Twin Peaks. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look into the question, who in Twin Peaks is showing signs of being connected to other realms uh, before we finally see the Red Room in the final scene of this episode. The first character I want to look at is Audrey Horn. I mean, she she says it in this episode. Well, every episode, somebody says something about dreams. Like last episode, it was Donna saying, you know, she felt like she was in a dream and a nightmare all at once. And um, Audrey definitely says it right before she starts dancing at the double R. You know, isn't it too dreamy? Um, it seems like music guides her through the series. And um, she kind of goes trance adjacent with the whole way the music kind of captures her and makes her dance right in the middle of the double R, no matter how many Haywards decide to judge her for it. Um, and it makes me basically think of how, how the little man from another place dances at the end of this episode. I mean, there's a, there's a thing about, you know, music in the air and the birds singing a pretty song. It's like the, the, the lodge space and, you know, the, the, the uh, Roadhouse in season three has this all over it too, where the music almost puts you in a spot. It puts you on a certain frequency with its frequency. And it seems to, it seems to bring out the internal processes a little bit more and puts you a lot closer to lodge space. Um, so yeah, Audrey, with the music and um before that she talks she um well i mean she she talks to donna about her crush on cooper first you know with the you know cooper loves coffee um all that kind of stuff but then she gets in and asks like D has D did laura ever tell you anything about my father you know it's like she wants to get to the truth too and she asks a couple different ways, um, you know, basically says he used to sing to her, which again is a musical kind of connection. You know, the, the weird lodge spacey vibe and, um, you know, connecting that with music and connecting kind of the darker stuff with the lodge space. Um, it kind of makes sense that Laura would have like a secret part of her life. Um, also kind of cloaked in song, you know, even if it is kind of the mundane level of Ben Horn, which, you know, isn't nothing, but it's, you know, not Bob either. Um, so we learn that Ben Horn kind of has a song connection as well as Audrey. Um, and, and L, she makes a connection, uh, right. The, um, 
our our special guest host uh <laughs> she um l basically has this idea that laura i mean that um audrey and the horns are kind of a placeholder for the kind of family life we would have gotten from laura and her family had laura you know not died Audrey being connected to Laura, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, you you have it that, you know, she's not protected by her family. That's pretty apparent even this early in the series. Um, And she weaponizes her sexuality before it's weaponized against her. And um, we'll see that coming up a lot more, too. And um, Elle has uh, Elsie's connections to Ingmar Bergman's persona and... um, there you know with all the parallels that we can kind of see between her and Laura there's um there's a way that um that Elle likes the idea that Audrey could be the dreamer from season 3 um you know no other character is woken up from a dream the same way um there's there's a lot of different ways to to see that and i do like it and i'm gonna wait for Elle to come back before she really digs into that and i have a feeling it's gonna it's gonna make you pretty happy to hear it even if it's not at all the intent of any of the authors or directors and it's not just audrey either her brother johnny i mean he's the one who was making noise and being very conspicuous i mean audrey blended in in the dinner scene almost to the point where like she was she was more um background than even sylvia and sylvia only said the one thing to she only said benjamin when jerry horn popped in um but johnny he was there the whole time and um his actor robert bauer uh decided that bringing the peter pan book to the table made a lot of sense to him and i mean it definitely does it's a whole I mean, Peter Pan and Never Neverland and Lodge Space. I mean, it's all it's all of thematic resonance anyway. And it makes sense where um, Johnny kind of lives inside his head. Um, and um, one thing uh, Bauer did instinctively was he was humming. So again, there's more music connection too. Yeah, so Johnny Horn is there. Sylvia checked out. Um, and Jerry shows up in a blue shirt and blue is a big, huge thing with Lynch. Like he doesn't, he doesn't let blue just show up, uh, for nothing. So Lynch being the director of this episode, you know, it does mean something here. Um, in this case, I kind of think it's a disruption because I mean, everybody was in their own heads. Everybody was very quiet and still like they, um, like they were having conversations in their own head rather than with anybody around them. Like, you know, that entire meal had been silent well before the cameras started rolling. Um, and Jerry comes in and, um, and he, he describes his trip as a nightmare. So that's another dream kind of thing. And, um, he kind of wakes up and comes alive, uh, when he jumps into the room and he makes Ben come alive too. And, um, basically what are they coming alive to do to eat sandwiches like this this physical worldly appetite that they have is the thing that shows up here and um and jerry's really consistent like that too he is all worldly appetite here i mean he interrupts you know ben he's trying to paint a scene he's trying to make uh 
this this magical moment between him and Blackie with uh with the Shakespeare uh uh a sonnet, I think. And um and uh, he just interrupts and you know just cuts to the chase, you know, it's like where's the new girl or um yeah, so um yeah, he's he's all about just kind of getting getting to the bottom of things. Um so I I think that's about the only reason why the blue is here. Um just to keep things moving. Now, one other thing about the scene itself, I'll notice that the um, there's Navajo artwork all over the walls of that of that dinner uh, of that dinner table scene, um, and it reminds her again of Kubrick's Overlook Hotel from The Shining, and Johnny's wearing the Native American headdress again. It's another silent reminder, as L put it of the victims of his forefathers' greed, connecting colonialism and the evil that men do. So with the colonialism, we'll definitely be going into that a little bit more um, later on with the secret history. And as far as uh, today goes, it has more to do with the uh, connections to the the Overlook Hotel from The Shining. Um, But what we also get is with Ben's always a pleasure, um, it seems like his major thing is that he's a father figure and he doesn't offer much at all, if anything, in the way of support, guidance, or love to his family, and possibly even worse. Those are all observations L had at one point, and um, I absolutely agree with them. Um, one note that I found interesting was in the hallway when Ben tells Jerry of Laura's murder and the Norwegian's deal fell through, Jerry reacts to the news in absolute reverse order, going backwards. And um, I'm not saying he's Lodge Spacey, but, you know, in, in season three, he is kind of stuck in the woods. And um, here we also have him... Um, behaving like from a negative standpoint where it's all appetite all want rather than need um so going like reacting to the news backwards is pretty much thematically on point um when he says he's depressed his brother has the solution to go to one-eyed jacks and you know uh, there's a new girl um so yeah what um what L found with another clue to The Shining is all work and no play makes Ben and Jerry dull boys, uh, which was seen in Jack Nicholson's typewriter in The Overlook when his wife realizes the work he buries himself in and avoids his family with is more sinister than she thought. Just as The Shining gives us terrible clues, L would say, that Jack is abusing his child. Twin Peaks opening shots lead into similar mazes of trauma. Another way to connect The Shining is with Jung's Red Book, uh, which um, which Carl Jung wrote in the midst of psychosis. It's actually there in The Shining as as a prop. <laughs> like he actually uses this book as a prop in The Shining, and um, it's it's pretty apparent that the hotel was a symbol for collective trauma. And that trauma, which is, um, I mean, it's likely hidden in the Great Northern with the way, you know, people get pulled into drawer pulls and whatnot. 
Um, and it's absolutely parallel to the Palmer house, which, you know, we see enough, uh, there, um, that kind of trauma actually plays out in one eye jacks and that's where they go now is is it's um it's apparent to me that lynch introduced one eye jacks and the red room at the same time and there's a lot of similarities which i'm going to go into but there's this open question of is the red room the echo of one eye jacks or is one eye jacks the echo of the red room and um I mean, you you could say yes to either of them and not be entirely wrong, no matter what you say, because it's just not nailed down. Um, but regardless of which um, which is an echo, or if there is officially an echo, the um, the physical real world equivalent of the Red Room is One Eye Jacks, at least in theme. Um, so yeah, Lynch debuted them both here himself in the same episode. Um, there's an interesting sound design right away. The um, the neon sign, um, the J, it it crackles loudly with electricity every time it goes off. And you know Lynch is a sound design kind of guy. Um, he wouldn't put it there if he didn't think there was a reason for like you know a negative frequency kind of vibe. Um, you know like. Like it's there on one eye jacks, but within the same episode, um, Big Ed's gas farm, uh, Lynch shows that the the neon sign from there, and it's absolutely silent. So uh, yeah, yeah. There's the positive kind of frequency, and then there's the negative kind of frequency, and um, the one eye jacks um, definitely fits the bill for that. Um, there's other kind of connections um, to it and uh, with one eye jacks. I mean, later on, we'll see the wallpaper. Uh, it's the same wallpaper that they use in the Chalfont painting that, um, that the grandmother gives to Laura in Fire Walk With Me and Laura hangs on her wall. And it's the same wallpaper as, and, as we see. And I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the, the picture that Laura has and the Dutchman's, which we'll see later in season three, are basically the same location with the same wallpaper, same doorway, same, same, same. Um, so yeah, <laughs> they are definitely connecting hard that one eye jacks is in that same negative sort of vibe of the red room. And not to say that the red room is all negative, but it definitely has connections that are negative. Yeah, and um, I mean, the most obvious one is that there are red curtains. And the red curtains, um, you know, Ben walks into it, literally. The the new girl takes him in there. And um, in this way, like, walking through the red curtains kind of represents the dreams, the, the pleasures, the wants of its client. And um, in this case, it reveals the repugnant side of Ben Horn. So we basically make it through the horns as far as their connections to other worlds. But I mean, you can, you can find them all over. It's almost like, you know, the, the music in the air, it's, it's almost like weather. <laughs> the, um, the lodge interacts with the area around Twin Peaks. I mean, sure. Maybe the barriers are just weak, you know, maybe there's, um, just something about the place, 
but uh you know we'll hear harry talk about it that there's just you know something in the woods um yeah so we can see at present with with donna's scenes um in in sort of this way okay first there's a there's a pre-scene where we see a fireplace and that's the establishing shot where um she's talking with james uh, there on the couch and then her parents are you know going to bed they're talking about church in the morning um the fireplace is only there because there was a fireplace in um in the horns um di- uh, dining room and um you know, it just kind of goes from one fireplace to another just to kind of thematically show like this is a positive family experience where everybody's communicating. Uh, James is complimenting uh, Mrs. Hayward on the food, you know, like all that stuff, all the all the good, wholesome 50s stuff that uh, Lynch absolutely loves. Um, yeah, so there, there's a really short pre-scene. And there's a lot of pre-scenes here, actually. Like, right before the One-Eyed Jack scene, there's the pre-scene of the boat going across the water. Um, there's a there's a really short pre-scene before the rock toss scene where um, we, we look at the donuts right away, and that's what's kind of fueling that scene. And all we see there is um, Cooper and Harry and Hawk and all them uh, measuring out the, the distance of a pitcher's mound to a home plate. Uh, between Cooper and the bottle, and that's all we see there. And um, I kind of feel like, you know, why why set up like do a really quick establishing scene and then a bigger scene around it in a little bit? I think it's to kind of set up the rhythm where Cooper's going to bed, and then we have the whole dream. So like you know there there's you know falling asleep, and there's that stage of getting ready for the experience that's to come um and for the donna and james scene um the next time we see them we hear the clock ticking you know the 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 grandfather clock is the first thing we see and um you know they're sitting in the scene where where bob crawls over later on and that's neither here nor there i just want to note that it's like oh yeah it's that couch huh um uh so the the clock ticking is very similar to how Cooper, um, how Cooper's room is, you know, before, before he falls asleep and after he falls asleep, you can hear the clock ticking in his room. Um, so there, there's like this, this metronome. It's like, you could call it percussion, I guess, but you could also call it, um, like a, um, it's like an obvious, thing that says you are living in the moment right now but it's like also sort of trancy so yeah it's it's almost um a certain amount of um a positive vibe that they're in because um you can feel like the the love energy rather than fear energy here and um you know james and donna they're talking about how it was always meant to be that they were gonna probably be together and um like with this with this dreaminess that they're kind of in like right now it's like they they don't have to worry about reality they can just worry about what their feelings are and they're allowed to express them out loud you know they're they're allowed to admit their true feelings together and um it it kind of gives another um a young vibe carl young um that young <laughs> not their age uh yeah so um young is is saying like 
more truth can arrive from the unconscious than from when you're, you know, just like physically in the world awake. Like the the unconscious like allows you to get to a bigger truth. And um, I kind of feel like this is where James and Donna are at, except their scene ends with kissing rather than um, rather than an answer. Like Donna asks twice. She's like, are we going to be together, James? Are we? And it just fades off without any kind of answer from James, which is interesting considering it seems like it is so positive. Um, yeah, and then later on, we'll see it. We'll see it with uh, Sarah asking what is going on in this house twice without getting an answer. And um, Bobby and Shelley, they end up kissing, too, rather than dealing with with Leo, like when they're when they're in their house later. And uh, Bobby says, you know, I'll kill him if he does this to you again. You know, it's like instead of coming up with what are we going to do because of what's already happened? Um they they just you know give in to the <laughs> the passion they have and um i think I, I i think i already said this but when audrey's asking donna if laura talked about her father she interrupts her own she, she <laughs> audrey interrupts her own conversation she um she falls into the music before donna even you know thinks about giving her an answer i think donna was just kind of trying to figure it out but then like audrey just went off on her own (laughs) so like you know audrey did that to herself but it's still right in keeping with everything else that we're seeing and i kind of wonder if just like the little scenes might be setting up the bigger vibe scenes or the vibe of the bigger scenes later i kind of wonder if these these unanswered questions are foreshadowing for how dale doesn't answer harry at the end you know as i like, know it can wait until morning so i mean i guess technically he sort of answers but he doesn't answer harry's question and i'm pretty confident even though they don't have harry's dialogue that, that harry asks him twice you know it's like well who did it and we weren't going to get that answer either one interesting thing is we actually see the um the title sequence of invitation to love here and um lynch um Lynch famously, or I mean, maybe not famously, but like he's, um, he's on record saying that he, um, he didn't really like invitation to love how it was actually used. And, um, I don't know if he thought he was making fun of the, the soap opera side of Twin Peaks, or if it was like a little too on the nose, like it was, like it was telling us too much how to think of what it's talking about, uh, you know, like framing instead of being ambiguous like like he you know his bread and butter is like are we supposed to laugh at this scene or be horrified by this scene um you know it's like that that's his range of of being (laughs) when it comes to making you know tv or film and um i kind of wonder if um if the invitation to love stuff was framing it too much in like okay this is how we're supposed to see this parallel um but anyway um for as much as he um he didn't want it to continue into season two, I find it really interesting that the very first time we see Invitation to Love is in his his directed episode. Yeah, so I don't have too much to say about its meta-ness or anything. I'll save that till we actually get real scenes of Invitation to Love. But uh, uh, on the other hand, Nadine has plenty to work with here. Um, she's definitely on a negative frequency first. You know, like the... The first thing she says to 
I mean, well, I mean, not the first thing, but, you know, it's like she actually says, you make me sick. And, you know, there's the sickness, pain, you know, it's like it's all it's all in there with a negative frequency vibe that um, she's kind of stuck in. And she's so stuck in this mode. And I, I would say connected to the the weirdness around Twin Peaks so much that there's this super strength where she's bending the exercise equipment. And, um, I mean, it's, she's the only one with super strength in the first, in the first two seasons. Um, where's, where's the other time we see super strength though? How about in part 13 when Mr. C decks rain, uh, uh, what, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> when he decks Renzo, the, the guy he arm wrestled, and you know his face caves in because it was just one super strong punch. If Mister C isn't connected to the lot space in the most negative ways, like nobody is, you know. So I I think that um, Nadine is definitely one of the gifted and the damned in this case, and like she's in tune with that stuff, like so intuitively that she just you know she well whatever kind of super strength you got, it it's coming through her. One other thing that's worth noting with Nadine is she has these trinkets all over the place. You know, there's if if you look at one of them, they have the eye patch painted, and I always I always kind of wonder, like this is the first time we see him. I I wonder did David Lynch actually add that detail before he started filming the the scene with the doorway, or um, was that somebody in the props department, or was it Wendy Roby who did it? I mean, I I could see Nadine doing this for sure, and. Yeah, you know, it's like nobody really knows why the one doll has the or the um the um ceramic figurine has the eye patch, but yeah, there, there's it, it's it's a nice touch. But it's the ceramic figures themselves. She has so many of them, and um, the only other one that I can think of, the only other character who has them is Josie in the first uh, the first scene of the first episode. The first like one of the first things we see are the ceramic black dogs lying on her on her shelf and um you know it's like are these are these like segmented parts of themselves like is it is it a way of like showing that they've like got this wall between like you know they they have they have this dark side and then they have this other side that like maybe they have to put into things because they're so um stuck in this bad in in this bad spot that kind of hurts them like they're in pain and i wonder if like these trinkets are like you know a way to kind of keep part of them safe away from them you know even if it's just a thematic thing yeah so this wall of trinkets is between nadine in this scene and ed when he walks in and then the drape runners are also between him so like ed has all these barriers between him and nadine and he ends up busting up the drape runners and um, the only person he can really be honest about, you know, it's like, you know, he, he basically tells Nadine, you know, it's like, well, it was right in the middle of the floor. It's it's almost like he treats her like a kid who's leaving her toys all over the place. You know, it's like he's not mad at her, but, you know, it's like, what what do you expect? <laughs> it's like if if you leave your stuff out, I'm going to get it. You know, it's like I'll, like, you know, this is a teachable moment keep, to uh, keep <laughs> keep better care of your stuff uh and and the only person he can be honest with uh, is with norma and you know it's around the diner and the coffee um you know coffee is a symbol of like more clarity um 
yeah, so there's all that with Ed. I'm not really going to talk about him right now either besides that. But um, the next time he comes in, he actually kind of sidesteps around those trinkets. And, um, you know, it's like there's a little bit more of a straight shot between him and Nadine. And this is when Nadine comes out and like he doesn't know what's going to happen to him because you know she she just comes running at him but it turns out she's super happy because you know the grease makes the drape runner silent and so on and so forth and what it turns out is like not only is Nadine super happy she is dreaming big you know we're going to be so rich you know she's already got this illusion of where it's going to go so she's still in a dream but she's kind of on a positive frequency this time. It's all filled with, you know, dollar signs and love and all this. And um, it's it's a thing with Nadine. You know, it's like there's no balance. There's never an in-between. It's either all negative or all positive. And she's kind of stuck on that frequency. Whether And she still has super strength. Now, one other thing that will keep you in a weird frequency that's a little bit different than the physical world is drugs. And we have Leo, Bobby, and Mike in the forest, in the dark. All they have is flashlights with them. Now, there's a thing about shining light in the darkness, too. I mean, that's a big, huge theme, especially if you read stuff like, you know, the final dossier. And, um, you can kind of see it like, you know, it's like grow your light is a is a thing that the log lady talks about there. Um, so I find it really interesting that there's these little these little flashlights uh, shining light on the faces sometimes. And um, like one of the only times Leo shines light on his face, he seems to uh, that's when he can actually admit that he knows Shelly's cheating on him. and he doesn't have a complete answer for it. You know, it's like he can kind of see the signs, but he can't pinpoint it. And, um, you know, it's like he's, he, he's not on a clear enough, um, you know, compassion-based frequency to be able to see it. Um, now, Bobby, he realizes Leo's onto him here. Um, you know, he's scared here. Um, and then he sees the result with his own eyes with Shelly later. and. Um, yeah, so that's kind of his spot in all of this. And then Mike, um, you know, he gets the light shine on his face and everything. I mean, it's it's more of a thematic thing. I don't even know if Lynch intends this or if he just likes, you know, people when they're talking to have the light on them. Um, but, you know, either way, I feel like if he's giving somebody dialogue, it's like to be able to say your truth in a way. Um, and at the end of that scene, Mike basically voices that he's done um with the whole thing and i i kind of think he is i can't actually remember and i'm going to keep an eye out for this like is the next time we see mike is he actually going to be done with all the drug stuff i know he comes back to uh to help bobby out with leo's boots but that's after leo's already comatose so um yeah it's like is he there just to help his friend or is he still part of the the thing he just said he's done with um definitely worth noting um but yeah they're they're kind of all three of them kind of wake up to their situation you know it's like bobby realizes that shelly's in danger uh leo is able to admit that <laughs> shelly's cheating on him and mike figures out you know i'm done with this um 
Okay, and then there's the hooded mystery man. I think that was just Lynch, you know, throwing in a thing. I mean, I've got a, I got a good joke that it's Andrew Packard, but you know, it's like it, it really doesn't matter who that guy is. Um, yeah, the the more important stuff that I'm seeing as far as the theme stuff goes, um, Bobby and Mike do not use nicknames, and I don't think they use nicknames with each other at all from this point forward. So, like, no more Bopper, no more Snake. Um, I'm going to keep an eye out for that, too, because it's going to be really interesting if they do backpedal. But, um, yeah, it's like the there, there's a little bit of light shining through and they're starting to figure stuff out. OK, now we're getting in a little bit more um, specifically focused questions now that we made it through all the different people that have their scenes. Now, how does the bottle rock toss scene describe the reality in Twin Peaks? Now, this is a classic example of a Lynch bubble scene where um, Kimmy, basic, uh, Kimmy Robertson talked about it in, in, um, in Reflections, in Oral History of Twin Peaks. Uh, she basically said, like, you know, he, Lynch puts these bubble, like, you know, it almost puts everybody in a bubble where, like, they, they're all tuned to focus on one particular goal. Like, you know, Lynch, he'll, he'll basically tell the cast, he'll tell the crew. It's like, okay, this is what we are going to do. This is your part. This is your part. And like, you know, he gets everybody to focus and work very hard to get to these things. And I mean, this is this, I mean, as far as I can tell, the, the way Cooper sets the scene, I'm pretty sure this is the way Lynch does it. You know, it's like Cooper is um, setting up everybody to understand their purpose, understand their role, and then basically create this intuition circuit where the energy and the creativity just flows free. And in this scene, the, the characters, they're going to get an answer of where to go next. And Lynch is going to make this scene work like very quickly, very efficiently, and very positively. So the first thing Cooper does is he sets the scene for all the law, the 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 lawmen and Lucy. Um, you know, he he basically talks about Tibet and meditation, and uh, he literally says mind body coordination hand in hand with intuition. You know, it's like the mind is kind of the large spaciness, the body is the physical world. You know, it's like the the two the two states need to to work together in in combination and that has to work with intuition which is the intent behind the fire to to quote hawk from part 10 of uh, season three um you have to you have to have an intention so that you can use the mind and the body in unison to achieve the goal so after he gets done talking about tibet um he tells Harry to read the names and explain the relationship to Laura. So that kind of ties into it can be said aloud now. So saying something out loud means something. It makes it a little bit more official. Um, Hawk holds the buckets with the kitchen mittens. And, you know, I mean, I know, I know Lynch said that he only did it to, you know, because it made him laugh. He thought it'd be funny if Hawk had the mittens. But also, I mean, it kind of insulates him from the charge. You know, the, the rocks are not getting Hawk's energy 
from Hawk. You know, it's like the, the rocks can be there to be charged by Cooper, who gets the name and the relationship to Laura. And Andy stands by the bottles. I don't know if he's just there to be a witness, kind of like Sam with the glass box. You know, it's like somebody has to be there by the bottle to watch it, uh, to watch it break. I don't know. Um, and then Lucy checking the name off when the bottle breaks, uh, writing it down. And Major Briggs in the final dossier basically said, you know, don't write anything down. And um, Ray Monroe, you know, he wasn't supposed to write down the coordinates. You know, it's like basically if you're writing it down, you are officially making it real. And I kind of feel like that was Lucy's role. You know, it's like make it make it official of what's next. And then Cooper is supposed to take the rocks, say the name, charge it up with intention. And then he he throws the rock toward the bottle and whatever the rock does, it does. So um, basically, it seems like Cooper is giving direction to the energy that is going through him. And that fits in with the strong sender stuff that he talks about. And, um, you know, if this is all a bunch of hooey and woo woo to you, you know, uh, all all power to you to come up with a different angle that makes sense because they are there, too. (laughs) Uh, So what happens when the rocks are thrown like where do they land what happens um when james is called out it hits a stump on the right you know it's like okay he's close but not quite he's not quite related to the uh final moments of laura um josie it hits the stump and it shakes you know it's like okay maybe she's related maybe she isn't but nothing happened jacoby it strikes the bottle and it falls but doesn't break um you know, he was trying to to help Laura by getting in her head. You know, it's like maybe maybe he really was uh, fairly close to her mindset at the time. I don't know. Um, Johnny Horn, it completely misses and hits the garbage can. That totally makes sense. Uh, Norma, it hits the ground and then shakes the main stump. You know, she's she's grounded. She's kind of a foundational. You know, she she's somebody you can lean on. And then Shelly, it bounces off a nearby tree and hits Andy. Yeah, and, and and Harry says, yeah, where there's no sense, there's no feeling. Um, you know, is it because, you know, Shelly's just way off base too? I mean, you know, the the um the empty clang of the garbage can is what happened with, with Johnny Horn. And then, you know, um Andy gets hit. So like the helper makes the noise this time. So maybe Shelly's kind of like this um, you know, positive helping force. I don't know. Um so yeah, after after Andy gets hit, Harry walks over, basically asks uh, that this really came from a dream, and and um, Cooper in one of the actual one to one answers, he says yes. Yeah, so we don't get many answers in this episode, but that is definitely one of them, and it means something. Um, the next um, the next word or the next person they're going for is uh, one-eyed jacks and um it's the the gist of why it's there is because we need you know the progression of the plot you know we need the um the location revealed as the the place where further investigation needs to happen so you know we get that and um, I, I find it really interesting that Hawk uh, thinks, you know, it's like, oh, maybe it's uh, Big Ed's wife. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like he has 
uh, Harry is the only one who knows about One Eyed Jacks as the location. Um, I don't know if it's because it's Canada or what, but I mean, Hawk is, you know, I mean, he's a tracker. He's this, he's that. You know, he's, he's connected enough where you would think he would think of it or know about it or appear to know about it. Yet he's more knowledgeable about the, um, the higher plane, the, the lodge space connected realm. He's very good at that stuff. Whereas Harry isn't. So, you know, it's like they're, they're almost establishing right here that Hawk is more spiritual and Harry is more worldly. And like they balance each other out that way in a way. So we figure out that, you know, this, this uh, really came from a dream. We get the next place we're supposed to go to to further the investigation. And then after that, we get Leo Johnson's name called and the bottle breaks. And then we get the next person we're going to go investigate. So the immediate aftermath of this, we get the next scene where Albert arrives and we see Lucy reading about Tibet. So, you know, Lucy's expanding her mind and it's very sweet and very, <laughs> very nice that, um, you know, she's kind of connecting to this and wanting to learn more. There's not really anything else besides the dream itself, but. I'm wondering, the, the night before, Cooper blows his whistle, which is a sound trigger, not unlike what we'll get with Pennsylvania 65000 later, um, or the Screaming Courtyard Girl before. It's like Lynch loves these sounds that work as like some kind of, um, you know, it's, it's almost like pressing a button and making something happening with sound. And um, this cue brings up the phone ringing. And he answers it, and Hawk's calling in about certain things. Uh, one of them is that he calls about the one-armed man. And it's absolutely suspicious without cause, which today, you know, like, you're like, oh, man, you know, it's like they're, they're suspicious about a guy who just just happens to not have a left arm. I mean, oh, my God, you know, like, how, how, um, tr how complicated is that? But back, back in 1990, when this debuted, everybody was still very cognizant of the fugitive. I mean, it's a couple of years away from when Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones are in the fugitive movie, but everybody still knew about Richard Kimball, you know, um, on the run, on the run from the law. And the only thing that he can do to clear his name from, you know, everybody thinking that he killed his wife is by finding the one-armed man who did it. And, you know, it's like, so, I mean, finding the one-armed man is just a, it, it was, it was TV shorthand back then for something. Like, even if you didn't know it was from the fugitive, that was just still a thing that was mentioned. You know, it was, it, it's just, you know, like a known, a, a known shorthand. And um, so at the time, you know, of course you should be suspicious about a one-armed man, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just a thing you do. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, it's, it, it didn't age well. The reference is definitely lost on a lot of people here, but that's where it came from. And that's why I kind of give that one a pass. Um, so we hear about the mention of the bloody cloth and we'll see that after the rock toss thing too, right before Albert shows up. But um, the main the main thing here is the night before the rock toss, when um, when Cooper could sleep on it, he hears about a one armed man. 
and he gets that almost like it could be a clue and then he sleeps then the rock toss happens and then he sleeps again and then we get the dream where the one-armed man shows up so i feel like even even if there's not like even if like hearing about a one-armed man doesn't seed the dream or like it 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 introduces the concept enough for cooper that it almost feels like it, it could be a cause and effect you know it's like there's all these little details that get into cooper's brain and even if you want to consider it just a regular dream rather than like lodge space infiltrating his dream um you could kind of see like how all these little factors could be uh, settling into cooper's brain to fire those synapses or to, to fire you know like the the nerves will will fire the uh the electrical impulses that could get there and now i'm i know we could go straight into the dream from here but there's still one more scene but before we can go into the dream there's one more scene to get to and that's over at the palmer house for the first time this episode and before we go there we're going to hear a commercial from our friends at Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Okay, before we get into Dale Cooper's dream, we've got one more stopover at the Palmer House. Besides the fact that this is the first scene with Sarah and Leland Palmer, this is also the first time that Lynch is using the exterior shot of the Palmer House. In the pilot, there was almost no interiority with Sarah and Leland. It was all, like, they they were raw nerves like just experiencing the the loss and the pain um you know at least you know according to uh what everybody knew in the pilot um so yeah they were they were exposed and in in the <laughs> and in the episode 1 and in episode 1 it was directed by Dwayne Dunham so he was the first person to actually use the exterior of the house as the Palmers kind of started calming down and trying to collect themselves. And here, Lynch is definitely using the exterior shot to show the, um, the stuff underneath the surface that's, uh, that's still happening in the Palmer house. And um, again, we get it through music. You know, we, we have Sarah Palmer, and I, I did mention this a little bit earlier, but here we are now, where she says, what is going on in this house? And the first time she does it, she's trying to stop Leland from spinning around with Laura's picture. And the second time is after she swipes the needle away. Like, you know, she's, um, you know, she's already been injured on the glass of Laura's frame, and she swipes that needle right off the right off the record so the music finally stops and then she asks again clearly what is going on in this house she's yelling it like she wants the answer so badly and 
it seems like this is this is the first instance we see where Sarah is trying to wake up out of her pain and actually see what's really going on. You know, she takes away all the distractions she can. And instead of getting an answer from Leland, you know, that recurring theme, nobody getting answers. All she gets is a sobbing Leland who's stuck staring at that picture. This kind of actually reminds me of in episode 17, the um, dispute between brothers episode right after arbitrary law. Sarah, like the very last scene we see of her in the series, besides that episode 29 thing where Jacoby walks her in and she's got somebody else's voice. One of the last things she basically says in the series in episode 17 is, I want to remember all of it. So Sarah, again, tries to wake up. And, you know, here's her first instance of it. She wants to wake up. She wants to experience what's actually happening in front of her. She wants to understand. More than anything else, she wants to know what is going on. And just like in 17, just like. In, uh, well, I mean, uh, <laughs> season three is a total other can of worms, but like in this, in this original Twin Peaks incarnation, she really, really wants to understand what's been happening to her and her family. And she just won't get any answers from anybody. Now, before we get to Leland's part in this, I want to talk about the broken picture and the blood on the photograph. I mean, I know this was actually something that happened. Um, on, on the fly. I mean, like the picture wasn't supposed to break and cut Sarah or cut uh, Grace Zabriskie's finger, but it did. And uh, Ray Wise saw the blood and decided that his his acting choice for Leland was to take that blood and start painting with it on the photo. Like this is just something that Lynch was not expecting at all. And um, here we have possibly. Like, if, if you look at it, and you look at Laura at the very end of Firewalk with me, the the blood is in a lot of similar places. And I kind of wonder if this, if this hap, you know, happy, quote-unquote, uh, happy accident, or if this accident was another one of those happy moments where it turns into something creatively. And I I don't know... Nobody, um, nobody has said it anyway. Maybe Scott Ryan has it in his Fire Walk With Me book that's upcoming. Um, but it kind of looks like Leland is putting the blood in the same places as when Laura died. And that is pretty heartbreaking. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously creepy. <sighs> so, yeah, here we are at Leland. He chooses a song, Pennsylvania 65000. Now, Lynch uses real world music a lot. I mean, he, he used In Dreams and Blue Velvet, obviously, in, in Blue Velvet. So he's already got a taste of how that works, like from a, from a licensing standpoint, at least. So I'm sure he got that all figured out. But in, in Twin Peaks, like he uses, um, the, the Louis Armstrong song, you know, What a Wonderful World. And uh, in episode 14, um, he uses Take Five and Green Onions, among other things, in season three. Like, he's he's good at using songs um, from outside the Angelo scorebook, 
that um that kind of personify what a scene needs and um why this song right now well i i think it's because of the telephone rings that are part of the song you know it's it's their um they use the the telephone to act like it's um to to punctuate you know it's it it is percussion in the song too even though it's a telephone ring and um we get we get three of them at random points it almost feels in this case like it's somebody trying to enter the scene kind of like that phone that rings but isn't answered in Carrie Page's uh in Carrie Page's house um in part 17 of season 3 um but it also i mean it adds to the cacophony for sure um the first time it rings we are shown Laura's picture and that's the first time we see Laura's picture and then Leland picks it up and you know starts to starts to cry a little bit and then when the ring happens again his cries start to turn into that that like guttural shouting stuff that i mean i would consider it's probably uh, a lot of bob uh, influence coming through here too even though obviously Ray Wise didn't know it at the time. I mean, he used that same kind of roar that's full of pain to be a bit of Bob voice too when he had to take that part on. Um, and then the third time we hear the ring, it's just after Sarah comes in, but like she's looking back and forth and back and forth. And when it rings again, she decides instead of going to the record player, she chooses to go to Leland to get him to stop first because she needed things to stop. And while she makes the music stop, she can't make the score stop because towards the end of that scene, right before it goes to commercial, we hear Laura Palmer's theme creeping in and it's, it's thematically there to remind us of what really happened again. Okay, here we are at long last at Cooper's Dream. And the first thing the first thing I'm going to ask is, did Dale invoke this with his Tibetan method? The main question is, how does Cooper's dream describe the reality of Twin Peaks? And it's going to describe, I mean, less, you know, we, we've moved now from the lodge spaciness being a fog that can roll in over people. And we are getting into the main thing now. It's like, you know, how has... Dale figured out how to come to Lodge Space, even though he's, you know, still in his bed. And the the first question in that is, did Dale invoke this with his Tibetan method? You know, so did did he ask for this meeting? Did he sign himself up for it with the bottle rock toss scene? Um, did he create the space? Or was it already here? Because we don't know anything that happened in Firewalk with me at this point. We don't know. We didn't know um, if this was all, you know, subconscious things from Dale's mind that he's absorbed over the last couple of days. You know, like um, Hawk calling him, mentioning a one-armed man, you know, things like that. And this is all just, you know, shaking out for him to, um, you know, analyze his dream and do a dream interpretation. You know, it's like we don't we didn't know if Lodge Space was even a real thing. So it's worth asking, is 
Dale Cooper, the guy who originates Launch Space. And I mean, you know, like you, <laughs> it's it's a hard it, it's a hard thing to make that case. But I mean, technically, eh, you could he could be the dreamer, or you know, there 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 are ways that you can go off on paths for this. And another thing we have to ask about in terms of Dale's particular way of interacting with the Lodge space is, does this dream operate on Lodgey time loops? Kind of like the, um, is it future or is it past? You know, that stuff. Um, it seems like in season three, there are definitely three to four time loops that dale seems to go through within season three and we will go into that big time but um this particular dream kind of has elements of that too because we have the little man from another place rubbing his hands and you know he's um he's basically interrupted in a way by all the stuff that happened from the original washington uh Washington shooting of the of the final moments um, before it comes back to his spot where he and Laura Palmer are sitting in the red room with with Dale. So it's almost like does does Dale have this vision of Mike and Bob talking and then he kind of starts over again or is it all part of one continuous thing um, in the first part? the um the original pilot ending from from the uh Washington shooting location um it it starts by interrupting um the um the hands rubbing of um of um the little man from another place and we get the the slowed down sarah Laura's, you know like there's two of those and um while it's happening, there's like these little white flashes that go like, and um, you know they get faster. It's it's almost like like a reception or a frequency is tuning to Dale Cooper so that he can see what the message is supposed to tell him. And um, you know this is where it definitely gets a little more Jungian because you know the white flashes. Um, you know, it's like you, you get a flash of Bob at the bed that um, was in the Dunham episode. You get a, a shot of the bloody cloth um, actually in the train car. You get a shot of Laura dead on the autopsy table. Um, these white flashes are revealing truths or revealing um, true things that will help, you know, explain what had actually happened. One other thing that it makes me think of is in part 14 when when um Leland and Bob seem to be fighting for control over Leland's body there are these white flashes and the the last strongest white flash seems to imply that Bob has taken over so i kind of wonder if these white these white flashes are actually the dream kind of um you know, tuning Dale Cooper to the message that he's supposed to be getting. And we're getting the tick of the clock here, too, just like um, the James and Donna scene. And um, the the clock ticking gives the message from Mike and Bob 
the the monologues you know like the where mike says i mean it like it is like it sounds and the fact that he says like it is and like it sounds being either two different things two different sides of the same thing you know it's 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 got that proper lynchian nuance where it could be two absolutely different categories and you know him just you know clarifying the kind of thing that he actually means uh but yeah like it sounds with the frequency of music and um sarah and the pilot saying i knew from the sounds that it wasn't her or i could tell from the sounds that it wasn't her it's like the sounds will tell you things that your mind may not be able to interpret but the sounds tell it tell the truth whether it's in words or not you know that's <laughs> that's uh to everyone's discretion but the sounds will always kind of tell you what you're really supposed to be feeling and understanding the only other thing that i can think of right here before we go into mike later is um there's those 12 the the circle of 12 candles and it makes me think of the 12 sycamores that are in a circle that Dale enters into and um Bob's hand reaches out in the in episode 27 the Steve Gyllenhaal directed episode and um at the very end of that one in the 12 sycamores Bob reaches his arm out and then eventually he's in there he he's like almost bodily inside the circle of the 12 so i don't know exactly what the 12 signifies but i will i will dig into that as i go but it's interesting that bob is also associated with a, a circle of 12 here as well so the the 12 might have more to do with bob than almost anything i don't know so we've made it through the mike and the bob monologues and and then we go back to seeing Dale Cooper in profile in the chair in the red room. And I, I ask rhetorically because there is no, there is no exact answer, no documented answer. So was the man from another place interrupted by Mike and Bob or was it a transmission from the little man, uh, from the little man's, uh, rubbing of hands or, are we starting over again? And there's there's a lot of reasons to think all of the above. Um, you could say it's a message transmitted, almost like how the fireman uh, transmits that that little movie montage to Andy in Part 14. And instead of a a weird device that has like some kind of mist coming out of it for Andy. It could be the rubbing of the hands and the shaking, you know, it's like he's, um, I, I think, I, I think the little man from another place is charging it up to kind of power the dance that's going to be happening soon. But, um, yeah, I mean, he could be delivering a message or it could be a message cutting in through that very easily, because if you notice the backwards talking wasn't happening. Mike speaks forward and Bob speaks forward and the way the way it is I mean they mean it like it sounds and it's forward speaking and it's clear as a bell to Cooper 
which to me means that they are in the same frequency as Dale Cooper here. So are they also kind of from outside the Red Room at this point? Um, or is like, you know, it's like, you know, we're playing, <laughs> is that a Lodge recording sound? They sound forward. Um, you know, like whenever they play something that isn't actually happening right then, like, does it also play in the same frequency as where Dale is, which means he's kind of looking from the outside in? Um, yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, Jimmy Scott's um, Sycamore Trees, he sings that forward. And he that means that he's uh, one of the few things on the same frequency as as Dale in episode 29. I mean, yeah, you can... Um, you can like hyper focus on any of this lodge stuff and get like two hours of your life just missing because of all the implications that you could get from it. So there, there's a lot to think about, but let's get back to the story in progress. The little man from another place stops rubbing his hands. He claps, says let's rock. And then he grounds the charge on a metal rod. He grabs hold of it. And it kind of makes a noise when he lets go of it. Um, I feel like that is a static electricity thing right there. And we know Lynch is fascinated with the electricity. We know that that side of the lodge space uses electricity and kind of needs it, whether it's transportation, whether it's, um, you know, whatever it is. Like maybe in this case, it is delivering a message. And he's, um, He's getting ready to speak with Dale at this point. Um, we also see Laura Palmer sitting a, a chair over from Dale right now. So she touches her nose and then there's a bird shadow or um, a, there's a shadow behind them crossing the path of, you know, it, it goes from it, it goes from Cooper's side of the curtain all the way past Laura's side. And I don't know if that's supposed to be time progressing or what, but um, the unplugged professor, who was a first-time viewer on the Twin Peaks Wonderful and Strange logcast, he may not have ever seen Twin Peaks before, but he was absolutely convinced, like immediately, that that shadow was round enough where it had to be Saturn. He made a connection. Um, he made a connection that Saturn is the god of agriculture and wealth. And um, if that's influencing things like uh, Ben and Jerry Horn, um, that would make sense from a wealth standpoint. Uh, and then we have Cooper's fascination with trees, which connects to agriculture. Yeah, I mean, it might explain the hedonism, honestly, the appetites. If, if there's wealth, you know, it's like it could explain why there's so much kissing, interrupting the answers of questions. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why that being Saturn could make a lot of sense. And not to mention the Saturn lamp right next to Cooper on the table. And that host gave me another thing to think about where um, he thought Laura's touching her nose wasn't necessarily just about, you know, cocaine use, like, um, like is probably part of the motion. But he said, you're on the mark is what he got from it, which actually also really makes a lot of sense intuitively because like when um remember when in, in this episode um cooper cooper um talks about albert to harry and you know like you know he's lacking in social nice niceties 
And Harry says, nobody's perfect. And then um, Cooper goes, rink, <laughs> like grabs his nose in a really cute gesture, kind of like you're on the mark. And, um, you know, Harry had the right mindset in that moment, but he didn't have enough information to like really understand exactly how nobody's perfect could apply to Albert. You know, it's like he didn't understand the scale that he was working with. And I kind of feel like um, if the nose thing is a repeated visual pattern for uh, Dale in this moment, it's because he's on the right wavelength and he kind of has the tools to frame things, but he has no idea just how big or just how um, just how much nuance that can apply to this situation that he's in. We get that gum you like is coming back in style, which will be a line that comes back. We're going to talk about all the stuff that they say about Laura later on after we talk about Mike. And um, then we get then we get the little man getting up and doing his dance. Um, Laura goes over to Dale, kisses him and whispers. And then we don't get the answer. And besides Laura's message that was literally only delivered to Cooper rather than us. Besides that, the most striking thing is how there's a strobe light effect while while the man is dancing. and. He's mostly lit in it, but the very back of the of the red room is still lit normally. So from the back, we got light. And then from the front, we get these little flashes, almost like lightning is um, covering people. It's um, it's just a, a strobe effect rather than being a strobe effect through darkness. And um, <clears throat> the way Lynch uses light is always important. Um in in this scene at the very beginning we see cooper in bed and the light sweeps uh, there's a spotlight in his dark bedroom that starts from his feet and goes above his head at the beginning it's like is it scanning him is it going through him is that um him being transported to the lodge i mean there's also or n not the lodge but is he being transported to the red room with that um the the white flash is revealing truth um, revealing a change of states. Um, there's, there's the Saturn lamp right next to Cooper. And I kind of wonder, was that like the implied source of shadow from, from, um, the, the shadow that goes across the back curtain? Like, was, was it supposed to be kind of implied that like, there's a light source sweeping around that Saturn lamp, making the shadow? Um, there, there's all sorts of things that you can get to, um, when, when Cooper is lit by the spotlight, like strongly where it's just focused on him and unmoving when he's in his bed, it's when Mike is talking about the fire walk with me poem. And there's, um, at that time when Mike is talking, there's a static beat on both when he says future and past which will come into play a lot. So why is the red room lit normally as well as strobe for the little man? I wish I had an answer, but again, with the Jimmy Scott singing with, uh, with sycamore trees in episode 29, it's basically the same kind of thing where it starts out with singing and then it has a strobe light effect. So I really think in general, 
this is the Red Room tuning to Dale Cooper, or it's changing him so that he can experience more of the Red Room. It's like him acclimating to the town. It's like how in the pilot he was all noir, and in episode one, he was a lot more um, connected to the town and everything. And it's like the the more he gets connected to Twin Peaks, the more he gets connected to Lodge Space. And I kind of feel like this scene with the dream like solidifies that connection. Um, as far as music goes, we also see the force of music in the Roadhouse, especially in season three. Um, we see use in the Pennsylvania 65000 just there and then um even in episode 10 when the kids sing just you like the very next thing we get is bob so music evokes the the personifications or the characters from lodge space and it's just like there's no way around that now after cooper wakes up why wouldn't Cooper tell Harry the answer over the phone? Um, you know, we've we've talked about the connections that are here, that it kind of follows a pattern. But, I mean, besides the fact that the network needs a cliffhanger for next week, um, you know, like, why wouldn't he do it? Well, among other things, you can still hear the saxophone playing in the background. Dale, as far as I can say, is only half awake at that point. He's still half asleep. He's still halfway in the red room. And he's unable to transmit the information to Harry until the next morning when he's really awake. Except by then, the information stays in the dream. Okay, so now we've looked at the structure of Dale's dream. And now I'm going to ask you, what kind of presence is Philip Gerard? And I say Philip Gerard because he will become that. That's what he's credited in in season three, um, even though all we get here is Mike. Um, so other other Phillips that are noteworthy is obviously Philip Jeffries. Um, they seem to be kind of paired against each other, kind of like how the Haywards and the Horns were, um, you know, one's the good family, one's the bad family. Um, it seems like uh, Jeffries is the one kind of more associated with the Mr. C side of things. And, uh, Philip Jeffries, I mean, uh, Philip Gerard is the one more associated with the Dale that we know. Um, but why is he Mike here? Well, the, the nickname thing again, I mean, Bobby and Mike stopped calling each other Bopper and Snake, but you get all these things over the course of time. You know, there's Richard and Linda from part 18. There's, um, there's uh, or part part 17 and 18 um there's uh carrie page you know it's like she's not laura when she's in this weird state outside of herself you know there's the great went and you know even even uh laura calling herself the homecoming queen is kind of like putting putting something over her own name um yeah nicknames is a thing associated with drugs it's associated with um not being yourself it's a it's probably associated with i want to remember thing or i like to remember things my own way from lost highway um it's it's just a it's a code that lynch has and that to me says that even though he's speaking in the same frequency space as dale 
like they're still in an altered state from physical reality because Philip doesn't even know his name could be Philip. He just says his name is Mike. And as far as the forward talking goes, I mean, it was it's a practical thing because David Lynch hadn't come up with the idea of the backward talking yet because that was the Washington side and and the the backward talking didn't show up until the post production was already happening in Los Angeles. Um and the only other time we get where um he and Mike were on the same kind of frequency and Mike is speaking forward is in that part 17 scene at the Dutchman's where um where Mike invoke or where uh, Philip Jeffries invokes fire walk with me and he speaks forward um and that's when Dale's on his way to ask to go back in time so we get that that's a good way to frame it like Dale and Mike and Bob's scene all being in the same frequency it's like they're they're all kind of trying to break into the red room at this point or they're all in process of doing it and that's probably why they were on the same frequency here. So that's about all we can actually ask about Mike and Philip Gerard right now. There will be more, obviously, but right now we're going to move on to what kind of presence is Laura Palmer. And I'm asking this every single episode. <laughs> you probably already know how I phrase it. Um, but you have to ask because every single time we get a little bit more information about Laura and we already know she's lodge space adjacent or connected to it. And we've got to look at the information we get as we go. Um, and here we get lodge Laura, which could possibly be a whole different character besides Laura. Um, and she's in a room with Dale and there's the Venus de Medici behind her. Um, the Venus itself isn't probably connected to Laura, but she's connected with Laura right now. Um, I was the there's a part of a Wikipedia entry that basically says that this Venus um, is you know like pr protecting you know like she's covering her uh, her um, you know her breasts and her her um, hip area, and like it's almost like. She, she's almost acting as if surprised in the act of emerging from the sea. So I have a feeling that describes the room more than it describes Laura. You know, it's like you're entering from a dream and you're, you're joining here, which means like you've left the water of where you come from and now you're on this whole different level with a whole different way of operating. So, yeah, I, I think it's more about the symbolism of entering the Red Room from a dream. Um, <clears throat> as far as what we've seen from Laura up to this point, we've seen her on the video, uh, one saying, help me, which, you know, we, we, we've talked about that. And um, so up until now, we've seen Laura in, on, on the video dancing with Donna. Um, we've seen that video and then her saying, help me, which, you know, we've talked about, um, in the previous episode, um, we've seen her in James's memory, which is like the way he wants to remember things. 
Um, we've seen Laura's face uh, projected over Donna's face as seen by Sarah. Um, so like she's already been kind of creeping out into the world in, in various ways. And, you know, it feels supernatural already by how many people there were who didn't even need to be told she was, you know, she was dead. And that being mostly Donna, Leland, and Sarah, but there were other ways of feeling that way too. Um, I kind of feel like you can make a really strong case that that's the way the Red Room seems to push out into the physical world. And is this Lodge Laura the one who has been pushing out? Is she the one who said, help me? Um, there's, there's a lot of things. Um, that is happening is is that truth like the way the truth is being pushed out is it kind of like how we see the giant announcing maddie's death in the roadhouse or like waving his arms like no when um when annie wants to be queen or when when she says she's going to enter miss twin peaks i mean there's is this another element of the lodge trying to reach out uh, the, the actual dialogue of the scene, the, the man from another place says she's my cousin, but doesn't she look almost exactly like Laura Palmer? Um, and then Cooper defines her as Laura. Like he says, you are Laura Palmer. And then asks, are you Laura Palmer? So like he gets less sure as he goes. Um, so, so if she's a cousin, does that make the man from another place and, and Bob brothers and the, this Laura here was fathered by Bob. Um, does it make Man from Another Place a tulpa similar to what we will find Lodge Laura has become um, and thus making him either uh, Judy's sibling or like some kind of connection, kind of like, um, like did, did uh, Philip Gerard end up making Mike I mean, make <laughs> did Philip Gerard make the little man from another place when he cut off his arm, and it happened to be that he made a tulpa. You know, it's like there, there's all sorts of different variations on this worth thinking about, and I'm not really going to settle on any of them right now. Um, when Laura says, I feel like I know her, but sometimes my arms bend back, it really brings to mind part eight, the, um, the mother or the... Um, the the same kind of creature that's in the black box or i mean the that's in the the glass box of part one um is there and it's spewing out all that 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 frog spawn or whatever it is and um if you look the hands are backwards which kind of means that the arms are backwards and it makes me think of all the backwards talking and you know just being backwards is like the energy going in the wrong direction. It's like the negative force, which is, you know, another good thing, a good sign that that character actually was Judy, but um, that's neither here nor there now. Uh, it's just another way of, of showing that um, backwards is not the way to go. You should always follow the energy forward instead of, you know, pushing back where you've already come. Um, and then we have the little man saying she's filled with secrets. And, um, that makes me think of a uh, secret history of twin peaks where we get a lot of differences between secrets and mysteries. And, uh, 
the way that um, the archivist says, um, I, I'm going to I'm going to quote the archivist here, basically saying secrets are human made to obfuscate truth and maintain power. So. Did Laura have secrets from herself that she isn't able to deal with because of fear or being on that kind of a frequency? Um, is she holding on to the secrets to basically keep power within herself while she deals with what she's dealing with? Okay, so I've already mentioned that Lodge Laura is basically a tulpa. Uh, we find out enough things where we can make that. I, I'm I'm going to consider that to be the thing. Um. Maybe not absolutely true, but it's true enough where I want to explore that path for a while. Um, so if Lodge Laura then was a Tulpa, Lodge Laura now is probably a Tulpa. And um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about J.C. Hotchkiss's piece, The Reincarn Reincarnation and the Return Part 1. It's one of the 25 Years Later side articles that's over on TV Obsessive. Um, she talks about a Tulka concept. Um, and, and she also is supposed like she's, she's doing the thought experiment where the, um, she's supposing that the 2017 peaks is based around reincarnation and emanation, which Lynch is, you know, he's already on that thought train here. I mean, he's been believing this sort of stuff for a while and it would make sense that it would already be, um, that he would already be laying stones that could turn into that path with time once he sits with ideas long enough. Um, and, um, well, in, in JC's article, she attributes this concept to Cooper, but it can also apply to Laura here to a degree. And she quotes His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet's webpage here. Um, it says, Emanation before the passing away of the predecessor, the Made Tulka. Usually a reincarnation has to be someone's taking rebirth as a human being after previously passing away. Ordinary sentient beings generally cannot manifest an emanation before death, the Made Tulka, but superior bodhisattvas who can manifest themselves in hundreds or thousands of bodies simultaneously can manifest an emanation before death. Within the Tibetan system of recognizing tulkas, there are emanations who belong to the same mind stream as the predecessor, emanations who are connected to others through the power of karma and prayers, and emanations who come as a result of blessings and appointment. JC also suggests that Laura's gone into the first level of bardo of the afterlife. And this one she got from spiritualtravel.org. Um, the, the quote here is, As such beings appear, they are sometimes frightening to the individual because of their spiritual power. Their appearance is accompanied by powerful lights and sounds that frighten and bewilder those who have not encountered intense spiritual states in the past. The spiritual light is described as having a terrifying brilliance and as luminous, clear, bright, and sharp. 
So obviously we're talking about season three a lot at this moment because, you know, Laura, she, she, you know, flips her face forward and all we see is this light shining through. Um, and we also see how tulpas uh, can enter greater reality or at least reality influenced by lodge space. Um, you know, we've got Diane in season three. Um, lodge Laura was pulled away from her, uh, from uh, she was pulled away in part two, the same way that Diane was pulled away right before she appears in the red room in part 16. Um, and what we know for sure is that tulpas are created for a purpose. Um, at least the, um, the Cooper versions can be that, uh, Philip Gerard makes. And, you know, again, maybe he ended up making the little man from another place this way, whether by accident or not. Um, so if Laura is that kind of a creation, if she is a Tulka or a Tulpa, um, is she basically part of Laura that cannot move forward? Does she need to reveal truth or does she need to have truth revealed to her in order to, for her to continue on in a in the cycle of reincarnation like is she at an early step there's definitely enough connections to consider this lodge laura a tulpa already and we even have a possible creation point which is when she took the owl ring um we have ray monroe who showed up in the lodge after the ring uh, went on his finger og dougie same thing he wore the ring and then like at least part of himself was transported into the red room. Uh, Mr. C, he appears in the red room after the owl ring is placed on his finger. So at least part at minimum, a part of a person is transported into the lodge. I mean, same thing happened in fire walk with me. Laura was in the lodge, even though her body was still on earth in, in the plastic on the water. Um, it makes me wonder if if the ring is placed on a finger after or around the same time as they die, is the trauma of that death manifested into this character? And you know, we can go back to the Log Lady introduction where some ideas like men, you know, like where where um the lodge spirits or denizens or whatever you want to call them, like is every character in there an emanation of an idea and the fact that Laura might need to understand that she died, how she died. It, it fits in with that. Um, another thing with the way the owl ring has been, um, coded over the year with, uh, over the years with its lore, um, in, in understanding season three, how the fireman brings back some memories, um, part of my electricity nexus column over on TV obsessive, um, I made a connection to Ronnie Rocket. Um, if, and, and I'm going to read from that article. The bad guys have to kill Ronnie inside the city because otherwise he might come back as a memory in the physical city. <clears throat> or he might come back as a memory. In the physical city, he'll die in his body and people will remember him in their hearts. But if he dies a traumatic death in the second dimension, becoming a memory means something much more. The strongest events, like Ronnie Rocket implies, 
appear to manifest in lodge space into a physicality of their own not unlike ghosts. They form into things like tulpas, and if you die and are sent to the lodge, you almost assuredly become a memory. So, thanks to the ring, did the trauma of Laura's death take shape, become a memory, and it's a memory that needs to be seen, then recognized, and then understood before it can recognize, let go, and evolve. Obviously, from there, I mean, a thousand college theses could or theses could <laughs> could be created. You could write, you know, seventeen critical analysis books just on that. And I will go back to analyze this for sure. But right here, that's about all the information that we can work with. Um, I think all that's left to be done now is to do the sign off. You've been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, and we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JP underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on the Instagram. You can visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Cinephile Hissy Fits and Ruminations from the Red Room. You can find any number of classic 25 Years Later site Twin Peaks articles and content from many other TV shows at TVObsessive.com. And if you want to be part of our monthly mailbag Patreon episodes, which I highly recommend, send your burning questions and passionate feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week as we cover episode three, the fourth overall episode of Twin Peaks. And until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. It's a mystery. Thank you.